Well, I guess now I can say something. Well, two things. Two new privileges as of today. I got to put my car in the pastor's parking spot. <laughs> Waverly and I began back in the beginning. I always parked back in that one spot back on the corner back there in the back parking lot. And it's kind of comfortable back there, you know. <laughs> Quiet. We'd sit and talk. We got here earlier. But I parked up there today. And now I can say, this is your pastor. <laughs> and our morning message is from 1 John chapter 5. The threefold witness, as Roger has spoken of. And uh, we'll begin, I'm going to begin reading in verse 5, and I'll go down through verse 12. We'll not cover all of that today. But hear me, brothers and sisters, stay with me in this. You've got a handout. Does everybody have two-page handout? If not, raise your mitten. We have a minister of handouts available. Everybody got one? Okay. Stay with me because if you do not, Say with me, about halfway through, you're going to say, we have called us a heretic to be a pastor. Okay? Some of this stuff on here, you're going to say, wait a minute. Okay? But stay with me, because I'm not a heretic. Okay? But, and you say, well, why discuss this now, or why I cover this now? Because it's the next verses in our text. We're preaching through First John, right? This is where we are, and this is something that's called the, actually the comma Johannan, uh, which is mean like comma and then John, comma Johannan. It's a debate that we'll discuss here later on. It's been going on for centuries now. And so you'll know what it's about when it's over. But you'll also know that I'm not a heretic either. Okay. First John chapter 5. Verse 5 first, who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. It is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. There are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he hath not believed the record that God gave of his son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this eternal life is in his son. He that hath the son hath life. He that hath not the son of God hath not life. Let's pray together. Father, how grateful we are to be numbered in that number that has life. Because we have life in the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, that that's the record that stands through the ages. There's life in the Lord Jesus and in Him alone. Thank you, Father, that we're numbered in that number today, Lord. Uh, this has some controversial stuff here to deal with. Lord, wear me like a garment. 
have your way and will in each of our hearts and minds because we love you, Father. We love you, Lord Jesus. We love this word, and we love the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. So use us for the honor, praise, and glory, and our growth and grace in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. Well, first of all, let's examine verse 6 there. He that came by water and blood, even the Lord Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood, and the Spirit beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. Isn't it a wonderful thing that in all of life, in all of the encounters of life, all of the experiences, all the interactions, we find it, unfortunately, unique in some sectors, when we find someone that we can absolutely trust. It's always truth. This is always truth. The Word of God is always truth. And the Spirit of God always delivers the truth. And so what a blessed security this is because we're hanging our whole eternal souls on this. The Word of God, the truth of God, the ministry of the Spirit of God. In John 5, 1, the Apostle John <clears throat> called the Lord Jesus Christ the Christ. And in 5, 5, he calls him the Son of God. As we looked at, I believe it was last week or the week before, that was exactly, when you put those two verses together, that was exactly the testimony of Peter. When the Lord said, who do you say I am? He said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's our testimony. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Notice in this verse that John states that this is he that came. This one, he is the one that came. Never forget, <laughs> what an incredible Witness for Christ, powerful witness to the deity and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, this Apostle John was. It's fabulous. We read about John, the first chapter in the Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, He became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John knew intimately and personally as a disciple, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the first uh, verse of this epistle, he wrote, that which was from the beginning, which you've heard, we've seen with our eyes, we've looked upon, gazed upon him, our hands have touched him of the word of life. He was a witness for Christ qualified certainly to be a witness for Christ. And he's writing to New Testament believers, first century of the church. They already have agnostics coming in there, the Gnostics and, and the others, and the spirit of Antichrist is already working in the world. But this man knew wherewith of he, whereof he spoke. This is he that came. Had he come by water and blood? Well, obviously he's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ who had come already. And he had a lot of experience with him before he ever wrote this. But then he came by water and blood. What does that mean, how he came by water and blood? Notice that he uses the past tense. He came, returning to, referring to a historical event, an irrefutable fact. This is he that came by water and by blood, which is two or two aspects of the reveal significant information about the purpose of his coming. 
early 19th century pastor and seminary professor Alfred Plummer said, this phrase, he came by blood and water, it is the most perplexing phrase in the whole epistle. And there's a lot of debate about it. You know, what did it mean? No doubt John, the Apostle John, is writing to those first century recipients of his letter. He's writing to those who were familiar with what he's saying. The phraseology he's using was not new to their ears, I suspect. They knew what he was talking about when he said blood and water. But there's still a lot of varied interpretations as to what he meant, to what he was referring. Here's some of them. One interpretation uh, that I thought in time past has some plausibility, and certainly does have some application, but I thought it was plausible that he might be referring to John's physical birth when he said by water, he came by water, you know, we're all in a little sack of water, and he came by water, and because he's refuting the Gnostics and the others that said no, he had, in the spirit of Antichrist, he did not come in the flesh. Well, John's saying, well, he came in the flesh. I thought, well, that's a plausible position to take on this particular passage. Another commentator, some other commentators, including Luther for one, uh, Calvin for another, link these terms, water and blood, to the two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Well, first up, those aren't sacraments. The baptism and the Lord's Supper are not sacraments of the church. They're ordinances of the church. They do not confer any grace upon us, any additional grace upon us when we participate in the baptismal waters or when we share communion together. They're not sacraments. So that's not a good position. Plus the fact blood is never, blood is never used as a symbol for the Lord's Supper. It's not. It's the thing signified by the cup, but it's not a symbol for the Lord's Supper, big difference there. Another interpretation held by uh, Augustine and some others holds that the phrase water and blood refers to the wound in his side. John 19, 34 it is, or 14, oh, 34, John 19, 34, where the soldiers stuck the sword in his side and blood and water spilled out. And they held that this means that. That's what he's referring to, blood and water that flowed from the Lord Jesus' side. But it's hard to imagine this, how Jesus is coming through those two elements that actually came out of him. It's an awkward application, right? This doesn't fit. Again, John uses, uses the past tense, came, he came through the water and blood. And he knew the historical Jesus. He knew, was the, he knew he was the God-man, Christ the Lord, before he was ever baptized. He also knew him post-resurrection, God the Lord, the man, God-man, Christ Jesus. Awkward, then, to apply it to the wound in his side. Then there's another interpretation held by Tertullian and some others, which seems to me, and I think you probably will agree, that it's the best application of what John meant when he said blooder, blood and water. <laughs> my mind runs faster than my mouth sometimes, uh, which may not be too good. But he refers, makes them both historical experiences 
that the Lord Jesus Christ went through. Historical experiences, the blood and water, historical experiences that the Lord Jesus Christ passed through. Both of those witnessing to the fact that he was fully divine and fully human, the God-man, Christ the Lord. So water is the baptism. There at the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was declared to be the Son of God, and he was commissioned and empowered for the work that he was going to do. And also, the blood refers to his crucifixion. So really there in the blood and, and the water in the blood, you have the bookends of his ministry on earth, his mission on earth, the commissioning, the beginning, the anointing, and the baptism. And then the baptism of blood, if you will, that he went through in your place and mine. If you'll remember in our going through this first John epistle, uh, John all along, of course, writing to assure the recipients, his believers, that he was addressing there in the first century, assure them of their salvation. But he's at the same time rebuking the naysayers, the, the Gnostics and the, the heretics, the, those of the spirit of Antichrist and the dominions of war, uh, to refute them. And it may well be that John's intent under the direction of the Holy Spirit was to, using these two phrases, water and blood, and direct refutation of those who said he did not come in the flesh. Because if he did not come in the flesh, we've got a real problem. And that's another message right there. But he had to come in the flesh according to the holy purpose of God. Sinless flesh did I in my place and yours. So, one of the Gnostics, Serenthius, he uh, kind of coming on the scenes probably in the latter part of the first century, but he had a following that he garnered that really became more prominent in the second century. He held that Jesus was nothing more or less than any of you guys and, and I, normal man. Product of the marriage of Mary and Joseph. But that the divine Christ descended on him at the baptism. And then the divine Christ left him just before the crucifixion, maybe in the garden there. The divine Christ left him. Now to give the guy some benefit of doubt, you might say, well, he took this position because he just could not imagine that the God-man, Christ, could die for his wretched soul and mine. Okay? Maybe he's just trying to protect the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he couldn't accept it, the truth, otherwise. Make any difference what his motive was, he was wrong, but that may have been his motive. But John uses water and blood, and he's teaching there clearly a, a historical fact that cannot be refuted by any naysayer out there, because if you know John, you've got to understand what John knew personally. And he said, this is the one that was with God, was 
was God, came as the God-man in the flesh. We beheld his glory. I've touched him. I've handled him. I've heard him. I've watched him. I know who he is. And this is he that came. And he was baptized by John the Baptist. And he died on Calvary's tree. And I was there. And I saw him after when he came to life. What a testimony. Now, let's go to our handout. Two pages there. I didn't staple them together so you can put them side by side or whatever. Uh, let's review verses 7 and 8 from our handout. On the left-hand side, you'll see there that after the word record and after the word earth in verse 8, there's a bracket there, okay? Now, what I want us to do is I'm going to read this. You follow along. I'm going to read, begin reading verse 7, and then I'm going to pick up in verse 8. I'm going to stop in verse 7 at the bracket. I'm going to pick up in verse 8 at the bracket, okay? And this section in between is what is referred to as the comma Yohanan, okay? The comma and Yohanan, the writings of John. Verse 7, for there are three that bear record. Verse 8, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. So I've left out those words that are in the bracket, okay? Now I'll go over to the, uh, <coughs> pardon me, the next column there. <coughs> and you see that, first of all, utilizing just the words that are outside the bracket, Okay? Not inside the bracket, but outside the bracket, the, New Amer the King James and the New American Standard agree together. A little bit difference in words utilized because of the, the time frame it was written in or translated in. But they agree together, okay? That bear record in the King James, the word is martyreo, and it means martyred, means uh, testify as a martyr. It means to bear witness to, particularly it means to testify approvingly, to offer personal authentication personal authentication in favor of or affirmation of someone. And, of course, the Word is the Word of God there. God's uh, Son, the Lord Jesus, is ultimate expression on planet Earth of his, of his personhood to us. Now, let's look at the second sheet. <clears throat> I've already addressed the first one there, really, the bracketed in verse 7 and in verse 8 there. Uh, and I put those brackets in for, as I put those in for purpose of illustration. And you see that those bracketed words are not included in the New American Standard. Okay? But everything else is, but not the bracketed words. Those bracketed words are also included in the New King James because it was also translated from the Textus Receptus. Textus Receptus means received text. And it's a text that, that were received, meaning Greek text, original language, Mesoamerimatic, that the translations were translated from, which was the King James Version, as I mentioned, the New King James, Luther's German Bible, Tyndale's English Bible. By the way, Tyndale was the one that gave us numbers and chapters and verses. There wasn't before that. Can you imagine this whole Bible or one book? It's just, just take the Gospel of John, written in Greek. No spaces, nothing, no, pu no punctuation. 
and it was transferred. By the way, before the printing press, it was all hand copied. And the copyist would sit there one letter at a time from Greek to Latin or whatever, one letter at a time. I'm not gifted in that way. <laughs> you know, that's hard work for anyone. So, New King James Version, also translated from the text of Septus, as I said, has the text as the King James Version. However, I want you to, I'm going to read the footnotes in the New King James Version. The words, I quote, the words from in heaven, verse 7, through on earth, verse 8, are found only in a few Greek manuscripts, none dating earlier than the 14th century. Furthermore, the passage is not quoted by any Greek church fathers. The textual data suggests that these words were absent from the original letter, the original autograph, the first that John wrote or whoever wrote, okay, if it's another book. Erasmus, 1466-1536, when he lived, he published his first verse of the Latin, first version of the Latin translation of the New Testament in 1516 using the same uh, manuscripts that our King James addressed. The Textus Receptus, he used the same one. Now notice, he used that as the basis for his translation. In his first edition, the bracketed words were not there because he said, I did not find one single Greek manuscript that included them. Okay? However, he did include them in his third edition in 1522. Now, regarding the change, verse item 6, that Erastus made in, to include the text of the brackets in the King James Version, which are not included in the New American Standard, William MacDonald, editor of this Believer's Bible Commentary, which is a good commentary overall, by the way, makes the following comment in a footnote concerning the brackets, text within the brackets. Erasmus added these words to later editions of his Greek New Testament under pressure from the Pope because they occur in the official Roman Catholic Latin Bible, the Vulgate. Only four late, great, late, late Greek manuscripts have these words. And he makes the comment, so it's unsafe to use them. Those cultists that go door to door denying the Blessed Trinity are quick to point out these facts, so it's wise to be aware of the problems. And there are those that deny the Trinity, and you know they are. There, there was the oneness movement, maybe it still exists, uh, in the United Pentecost Church, and the whole witness, what, they deny the Trinity. Okay, they, they point to stuff like this. So while it's good to be aware of these technical issues, the question is, does it create any doctrinal problem? Leaving them out or putting them in, okay? Or cause us to lose trust in our King James version that we use for worship and teaching and devotions? And the answer to both of those questions is no. No, not at all. And we will address uh, that as we go farther along. Now, I told you to stay with me. <laughs> this is why. So when you compare the two, apart from the bracket words, there's no content difference and there's no doctrinal difference, okay? It is what it is. And both translations there. Now, on the assumption 
that the bracketed words are not in the original autographs. Let's examine just their content, okay? Just the words in the bracketed content. And you can look at your handout there and you find those. Verse 7, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Verse 8, there are three that bear witness at earth. Then the Spirit, the water, and the blood, they agree in one. Now, what does it really have there in your bracketed words? It really states that there's a threefold witness in heaven, and there's a threefold witness on earth. And that is doctrinally sound, ladies and gentlemen. Doctrinally sound. Threefold witness in heaven, threefold witness in earth. And so if you have some anti-Trinitarian man or woman ring your doorbell and say, well, you folks that believe the Trinity, it's not even in the scriptures. You can just say, well, I, I'm aware of what you're, why you're saying that. But then you simply respond in a kind way and say, but its inclusion here does not, include, does not create any doctrinal problem, nor does its exclusion here create any doctrinal problem. Because this section is not about the Trinity in the first place. This is about the Lord Jesus Christ and the beginning of his ministry and the completion of his ministry here on planet earth. Then you can take him to the gospel of Matthew, Matthew's record of the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. 3, 16 and 17. Jesus, when he was baptized, went straight up out of the water. Lo, the heavens were open unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So what do you have there? Three persons of the Godhead right there on the scene of his baptism. There's a Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, demonstrating obedience to fulfill all righteousness by being baptized. Notice, by the way, it said he came up out of the water. So that solves the question about baptism, right? He can't come up out of anything he hadn't been in. He was baptized by immersion. But notice he was demonstrating all righteousness, fulfilling all righteousness by submitting to baptism. And John said, hey, I need to be baptized. He said, no, no, fulfill all righteousness. And you may have encountered people, or I've encountered people in pastors through the years. Well, I just, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but I just don't see a need to be baptized. But what they're doing is either rejecting or ignoring the word of God because it is a fulfillment of all righteousness that every born of God person follow the Lord in baptism, period. That's it. What do you say? Go teach all nations and baptize them. So that takes care of that. So he's demonstrating all righteousness, demonstrating obedience to all righteousness. Then you got the Spirit of God descending on him. And then you have the Father declaring this is my beloved son. So right there, and there are many other verses, but it's all through the scriptures. You can find the three persons of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And there you, <laughs> that's glorious, really. I love that passage because you have the testimony of three from heaven and on earth. And the baptism and the blood are on earth. The Holy Spirit came from heaven. The Father's voice came from from heaven. And that's true wherever you go, you're going to find all through 
the scriptures, the Trinity. Including here, in this text, on the assumption that these were added to the original inspired autographs. Now we're on the same page, the original inspired autographs. That's when the Holy Spirit of God was directing John or Paul or whoever to write, and they wrote, we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Word of God. Word for word, the words God gave. Not just looking for a meaning behind, but the meaning he gave when he gave the words. Their placement where they are, the words that follow them, the words they precede, all in the order of the will of God. That is what we believe about the scriptures originally given to these apostles. Let's look at verse 8. There are three that bear witness in earth. The, the bracketed words there say, well, it's the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. Now, if we remove those first nine words, which are in the bracketed area, okay, the remaining words follow the seven words in verse 7. So we put the two together. Verse 7, there are three that bear record. Verse 8, the spirit, the water, and blood. And these three agree in one. So there's no doctrinal difference of what is being communicated there. Now why on earth? It's amazing to me because you look in the scriptures there and you see that <clears throat> in verse 7, John capitalized Holy Ghost. And then in verse 8, uh, well, this one, this is a different one that I got. I got another in the Ogre Bible at home. The spirit was lowercase. That might have been a type on the head. I kept figuring out, I had a much older Bible that I used and said, the lowercase, and it may be yours, spirit in the second one there is lowercase. And I thought, why is this so? Typo, I guess, I'm not sure. But both of them are capitalized. Obviously, it's a person of the Holy Spirit. So no doctrinal error created by their addition. No doctrinal error created by their omission because the witness of the water and the blood and the Holy Spirit was then and continues to be right here on planet Earth. Continues to be, you say? Yes, continues to be. Every baptism, every time we share the Lord's table, continuing to witness continuing to witness, continuing to witness. And every time the word of God is read, these words that John wrote, continuing witness, and the continuing witness of the Lord's word through the written page here, anointed by the Holy Spirit of God, baptism as disciples come to faith in Christ, sharing the Lord's cup. What does it say? Do this until I come. Witness, continuing witness. And by the way, a threefold witness goes back to a pattern found in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity, for any sin, and any, and any sin that he sinneth at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three shall things be established. So the Lord gave us three witnesses. Obviously, there's three in heaven, but there's three 
on planet earth as well. Matthew 18 is the same thing. We, same principle, talking about a guy who sins. Lord, this is the Lord speaking. If he will not hear thee, take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word of God be established. And that's what we have here, in the mouth of three, so to speak, because blood and water are personified. They speak, they teach. This is the beginning and the consummation of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ on planet earth. Now, our church webpage has a fallen copy. We believe, this is what we believe and teach, it says, the Bible is the inerrant and infallible Word of God. That's what we believe. And it gives the passages there to substantiate that. In the first London Confession of Faith, in the 1646 edition, has this, it's paragraph 8, their position of the uh, confession there on the Scriptures. And I quote, The rule of this knowledge, faith and obedience, Concerning the worship God of God in which is contained the whole duty of man is not men's laws or unwritten traditions or written traditions either. I added that. But only the word of God contained written in the scriptures and which is plainly recorded whatsoever is needful for us to know, believe, and practice which are the only rule of holiness and obedience for all saints of all times and all places to be observed. That's what we believe about the scriptures. It's important, though, when you see, and you know, in a doctoral statement we had in one of my other pastors, we believe in the inerrancy of scripture, thereby without error in the original autographs or whatever. When we talk about the inerrancy of scripture, talk about the infallibility of scripture, this is what we believe. Absolutely, this is what we believe, okay? But that pertains to the original autographs. And it does not pertain to any translation of anybody's because there are subject to errors. Goodness gracious, you know, it's a big deal with me to come to the pulpit here with an out, outline here that's letter perfect. You know how I get there? Because I got word search. <laughs> it points out my errors. These guys had line upon line, line upon line. If you've ever seen a Greek text, if you haven't seen to look at one, I think, my soul, how did these guys do that? And do you realize in the Greek language, there's a word or two or more that just changing one letter changes its whole meaning? And we got some of that in English, right? You know? You say, you know, Phil's running down the street. Brent's running for office. We know what we're talking about. <laughs> when another country said, what office is Brent running to, to get to? You see? So, we cannot depend on translations as being inerrant. Reliable, without question. Because you can put it all together. And you don't have anything that you can point your finger to that breeds the thought of unreliable doctrine or an unreliable position. There's just nothing there because it's been so much work going into this. This is worth surrendering to your life because it's sound doctrinally, no question about it. Your record standard would be as well. So we're always referring to the God-breathed scriptures as the 
men of old were given, the God-breathed scriptures, inspired of God. And then Second Peter says these holy men of old were carried along by the Spirit of God. Thus, what they wrote was inerrant and infallible. Now going back to what I said about running down the street and running for office. It's very important. And this is where I drive my stake down, right here. There's two types of interpretation of the scriptures. There's a formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence. If I'm using formal equivalence, that means that as much as possible, we're going literally from a Greek word or an Arabic word or a Hebrew word straight to the English equivalent. And it's not always perfectly possible. It's not always that easy. But if we're using formal equivalence, then you understand that when I said he's running down the street and he's running for office, you understand what I'm talking about because that fact is conveyed clearly because it's locked to what the Word of God said in the Greek, right? But if I'm looking at the Greek and say, well, okay, there's a committee of us five here, and we're working kind of like a pastor search committee. Let's read this and see what we think, and let's write down our best thoughts, and then we put it together, and okay, we believe we've captured the meaning of that text. Too much latitude for subjective reasoning. I do not... I've got scads of Bibles, formal equivalents, dynamic equivalents, all of that. Read the dynamic equivalent Bible as a commentary if you want. But lock your study in to the formal equivalent translation, word for word from the Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic. So in summary, based on the data available, the bracketed words were most likely, notice my phrase now, were most likely not contain the original inspired autographs. Why would I say most likely after going through all this? Because, you know, who knows when someone's going to find an earthen jar over there that's never been found before. That's what Qumran was about and all those scrolls. By the way, some of the translators use the scroll of Isaiah that they found in those vases there in Qumran. So you never know. Predated Those scrolls predated the time of Christ. However, at this point, though, in closing, I want to take issue, in all due respect, to the men that put together the Believer's Bible commentary. It's a good good commentary overall. But I want to take issue with a statement they made. That statement was this. Only four late Greek manuscripts have these words. Number four, I'm not sure that that word four is accurate. There may be some more than that, but I'm not sure. But no more than maybe six, seven, or eight, or... 10 or 11, whatever. But it's just the last phrase. So it is unsafe to use them. I don't buy that at all. I don't. Because it's not unsafe to use them because there's no doctrinal aberration in any of it. You leave men, take them out. There's no doctrinal difference caused by them, by their addition or the exclusion of any kind. And it certainly should not be used as a text of orthodoxy. And it has been, unfortunately, in some sections. 
And I say this with respect. My position is we ought to never build ourselves up by standing on anyone else's, else's head. Okay. They believe what they believe. We believe what we believe. But in the King James only situation, there has been times, have been times, excuse me, let me speak correctly. There have been times that that's been used as a test of orthodoxy. Would you believe this is in there? In the original, if you didn't, you were out. It's happened that way. One person said, well, Jesus said his sheep know his voice. And this is his voice. Well, it is his voice. Okay. As much as we can have it, and ladies and gentlemen, we're fortunate because we have it better than we've ever had as far as research substantiating the, doc the authenticity of this. But the translations, again, are not inherent. Well, again, the reason I went through all that today is because that's where we were in the text. And uh, if you have any questions, and I want to tell you, you can go on the internet, you can research this forever. There's so much documentation because this has been going on for decades, uh, the controversy there over it. And, uh, you know, read your Bible as it's written. When you read First John, these passages, don't be troubled with what I share with you today because you're not going to be led doctrinally astray by it. And I don't know why the Pope or those others, and there were some others, a fellow by the name of Lee, L-E-I-G-H, and another guy put pressure on Erasmus to add it to, to there. That's immaterial to me. But read it as it is. Love it as it is. Memorize it as it is. Live it as it is. We love you, Father. We love your word. And Lord, we love you. And we delight, Father, that you are totally sovereign. You rule and reign throughout all the galaxies and on this little ball of dirt called earth. You rule and you reign. And our confidence, Lord, is in you. You have preserved this record for our instruction. We receive it with gratitude. And we trust you, Father, in your sovereignty. You've seen to it that we've gotten what you intended for us to have. Oh, God, let us receive it with gratitude every day in our devotional times. And Sunday by Sunday and Wednesday nights, as we said, with gratitude, receiving, saturating our souls with your word, Lord. They will not be ever for, for thoroughly furnished, equipped to live out our lives, blazing for your glory. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen.